This is your moment, your time to shine, your comeback. You're ready for the next step in your career, and you want an education employers respect. So you're not just going back to school. You're coming back with Purdue Global. Backed by Purdue University, one of the nation's most respected public universities, Purdue Global is built for people who bring their life experience into the online classroom. Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. Looking to step up your Mother's Day flowers? The Home Depot has an idea. Let mom's green thumb do some digging with colorful flowers, pots, and premium soils to bring out the most in her patios, walkways, and gardens. Right now, get Vigoro Potting Soil, just $8.97 for strong, healthy, vibrant plants indoors and outside. Shop our wide selection online and pick up your order in-store and give mom the gift of a beautiful garden. Get Vigoro Potting Soil, just $8.97 at The Home Depot. How doers get more done. Right here, right now. Find your beautiful new floor at Right Rug Flooring. Choose from thousands of in-stock styles, ready for next day installation, and all backed by the right price guarantee. Visit rightrug.com. That's R-I-T-E-R-U-G.com today to schedule a free in-home estimate or to find a location near you. 24-month financing is available with approved credit. For 90 years, we've been right here, right now. Right Rug Flooring. Hi, She Pivots listeners. I'm so excited to share with you that we've been nominated for the second year in a row for Signal Awards Listener's Choice for Most Inspirational Episode for this season's episode with Ukrainian refugee Tetiana Podol. But in order to win, we need your vote. To vote for our episode, visit the link in our Instagram bio at She Pivots the Podcast or search for She Pivots when you go to vote.signalaward.com. Tetiana's story is truly incredible. As a Ukrainian refugee, she's dedicated herself to volunteering in the war. And her story starts long before she was even born, as she recalls the experiences of her grandparents in a post Soviet Ukraine. She carries us through an emotional retelling of how she went back to her home country just weeks after the war started to care for her family and eventually leading a grassroots effort to transport supplies to her father's unit on the front lines. It is truly an amazing episode, so please vote and share it with your friends. I've had a lot of adversity and when I'm handed these things, I have to learn how to pivot and survive and, uh, turn it into a good thing. Welcome to She Pivots, the podcast where we talk with women who dared to pivot out of one career and into something new and explore how their personal lives impacted these decisions. I'm your host, Emily Tish sussman Today, we have perhaps one of our most interesting guests yet. She's a former police officer and the owner of Spalding Deacon. What is Spalding Deacon, you may ask? Well, it's a crime scene cleanup company that rakes in millions in profits each year with hundreds of franchises across the country. The journey to Laura Spalding's success was no easy path. After eventually becoming a police officer in Missouri, she had an upsetting encounter with the mother of a victim who asked her when the police would be coming back to clean up after the tragic murder of her son. It was then that Laura saw the need for victims and their families, and she launched her business. 
Laura's story is one of adversity and perseverance with some interesting complexities thrown in. I hope you enjoy it and learn a little something as I did. My name is Laura Spaulding. I live in Tampa, Florida, and I own a crime scene cleaning company. Not something we get on every episode. No, probably not. (laughs) (laughs) Where did you grow up? I moved around quite a bit. Um, my parents work for the government, so we moved, you know, every few years or so. So I, I lived in a couple different countries, several states. I call Tampa home because I went to high school here. Her parents worked for the Drug Enforcement Administration, and although she did not go into great detail about her relationship with them, it was extremely clear that it was and will likely not ever be a positive relationship. I have never had a good relationship with my family. You know, I left home right when I turned 18. So I didn't really have a place to live. I was kind of bouncing from from different homes to try to put myself through school. And uh, so, you know, there never there was never any, I guess, uh, relationship with my family. I haven't seen them or spoken to them in over 20 years. So what did you think you were going to do when you grew up? Uh, police officer. I always kind of thought I would, I would be in law enforcement. You know, I kind of saw how it was exciting and it was different every day and, uh, there was no monotony. You're not sitting in a cubicle. So I thought, you know what, it's, it's challenging and I like a challenge. So I went to college at the university of Tennessee, but before that, not right out of high school, but I was about 19 years old when I enlisted in the army and I had just completed kind of two years at, um, community college. And that was pretty much all I could afford. So I was at a a stop situation where I had to figure out I couldn't afford to put myself through the rest of college. So the military, I thought, was my only choice. So I enlisted in uh, 1994. Did you think of the Army as a way to finish education or did you think that the Army would then be a career? No, it was it was a means to an end. It was uh, I enlisted specifically because of the GI Bill and, and the benefits that you know, at that time, I didn't have a place to live. So it was it was kind of an escape from poverty and also a uh, means to get my education. It's also important to note the political landscape at the time. 1993, Bill Clinton had passed Don't Ask, Don't Tell. During my time working in politics, I actually worked on the repeal of Don't Ask, Don't Tell. And even when we were working on the repeal, it was widely known that at the time of its passing... It was originally thought to be a positive step forward, but it wasn't long until everyone realized it wasn't. Don't ask, don't tell. Some veterans still cannot receive full benefits, such as loans and tuition and assistance and medical treatment, which they earned because of their service, but because they were not honorably discharged under that policy, they aren't eligible. So It is not a perfect solution. It is not identical with some of my own goals. And it certainly will not please everyone, perhaps not anyone. Clinton was right. So in 1994, I thought it would be somewhat safe for for me to go into the service and just, you know, get in, get out, do what I needed to do. And unfortunately, the upper ranks were not happy with the fact that he had kind of passed this compromise. So they led a witch hunt about four or five months into it. And uh, what the witch hunt consisted of is literally calling 
every single female in our barracks out and literally asking them who they thought was gay. So that's kind of how they got around the statement actor marriage, because they couldn't ask us directly, but they could ask us our opinion about others. So essentially three of us were reported that people had opinions that the three of us were were gay. And so the three of us got discharged. Just based on the fact that others thought you were gay. Exactly. There was never any admission. There was never a statement. There was never an act of marriage or anything like that. Wow. Did you identify as gay at the time? Internally, yeah. I was, I was not out, out in the... I kept to myself, you know, you're, you're in the military. For me, it was, again, a means to an end. I was going in for a sole purpose and getting out. Before Don't Ask, Don't Tell, you mentioned that it was a compromise. Before, there was just a straight-out ban on Correct. gays serving. So when you were going in, was that part of your contemplation that you would have to keep to yourself that Don't Ask, Don't Tell was in place? Absolutely. So I knew it was a, a compromise that I would have to make in order to get the education that I needed to kind of progress in my life. So it was a big decision, but it was one that I thought, you know, just stay to yourself and keep your head down and and get through it. One of those things, but never in my mind did I think that they would go on this rampage of a witch hunt to try to get out as many people as possible. In the military, when someone is discharged, it doesn't just mean they're kicked out. It means you lose all rights to veterans benefits. All of your paperwork is marked as discharged and there is an ink stain on your past. Laura quickly realized that the path that she had hoped would free her from poverty had fallen from underneath her. I was actually in a worse spot than I was before I went in. My attempt to be in a better spot actually put me in a worse spot because they discharged me. They stamped my paperwork, uh, homosexual, and I was 19 years old. You know, little did I realize that that would kind of be the tattoo that I would carry for my life and trying to get jobs and stuff. So I didn't have anywhere to go. So I went with a friend that got discharged as well. And we, her parents allowed us to stay in Michigan for a while until we figured out what we were going to do. So one day we were in her basement and uh, there was a map of the U.S. on the wall. And uh, she said, why don't we throw a dart and wherever it lands, let's go there. And I was like, well, we got nothing to lose. I we need, you know, I had nowhere to go. She had already had her degree. So we threw the dart and it landed on Knoxville, Tennessee. And that's where we went. I didn't know a single soul. I knew I would have to wait a year to establish residency before I could apply to the University of Tennessee. And that's exactly what I did. And then I took out some loans, the student loans to financial aid to be able to make it through. The thing that screwed me, though, on that aspect was I didn't qualify for financial assistance, despite the fact that I was in complete poverty because my parents kept claiming me on their tax returns. So it prohibited me from getting any financial aid and I couldn't get them to stop, even though I was submitting my own tax returns and showing, you know, independent that the two were in conflict. So every time they tried to get me aid that wasn't a loan, like grants and stuff, I would be blocked because it was based on their income and they gave me zero support whatsoever. During her year establishing residency, she worked in restaurants as a way to both feed and support herself. Finally, she enrolled and earned her bachelor's in criminal justice. So you were still really focused on law enforcement. 
I think it was more because I, I didn't know any other alternative. Like my life had never taken me to a path where I could see other careers. You know, I was just very honed in on that for the lack of a better opportunity. And, you know, you think at some point I would be like, okay, you know, the military screwed me. Police department is, is essentially uh, an arm of that as well. So the chances of that happening as well are, are probably pretty high. So, um, but it didn't, I, it didn't dissuade me. And I, I've always been very focused and very driven and sometimes to a fault, as you can see. Uh, <laughs> so that's kind of the, the path that I took when I, when I graduated college, I applied to basically every large city that I knew of, you know, Phoenix, Detroit, Atlanta, you know, all this stuff. But Kansas City happened to be the one that hired me first. One would think that military experience would improve your chances of entering the police force. But her discharge paperwork continued to complicate things. So what happened was this is kind of where the the stamp, the scarlet letter followed me around. So I initially had applied to Atlanta PD. You know, on the application, it says, have you ever been in the military? And I put yes. And I turned in my DD-214, which says homosexual. Immediately got denied. And of course, they don't give you a reason. So I called the military appointed lawyer that I had. And I said, I can't get any jobs because I've got the scarlet letter. And he said, you need to lie to these people and tell them you were never in. He said, you weren't in for very long anyway, so it's not really going to be a giant gap. And he was right. So I started checking no on all the boxes, and all of a sudden I got hired. So that that was definitely the reason. Wow. And once you started, did you acknowledge that you had served, or you just kind of erased it from your history? I erased it. I lied about it the entire time. She started as a police officer in Kansas City doing street patrol, but eventually she was able to choose a discipline. And interestingly enough, she chose to go undercover in narcotics. What was that like? You had to actually be undercover? Yeah, I was the only woman. Imagine that. It was difficult because you had to create a persona that was different than your own. And every time you went to work, you would have to step in to that persona, probably much like an actor would do. I had to alter my appearance, which is more difficult for a female than it is for a male because the males just grew out their facial hair, grew out their hair and dress like crap. Right. So, and they could easily fit in as a normal person, you know, a, a, not a cop for me, it's a lot different. Uh, so I, I couldn't, do that type of stuff. So I had to really come up with a persona and it took me probably four or five months to, to figure it out as I'm just kind of watching and observing. So what, what I did is I took this stuff called blackout and it looks like nail polish. And, uh, I blacked out some of my teeth to look like I didn't have any teeth. And then I took some coconut oil and I put it in my hair to make it look greasy. And then I literally wore the same clothes every single day for two years without washing them. So like I would take them off in my garage, put them on the next day for work and then just never, cause there's a, there's actually a smell to the streets, but that wasn't enough either. So what I had to do is I, uh, acted like I had special needs and I was, you know, slow and I had experience in being around that population because I have an aunt and uncle that, that are special needs. So I understand how they speak and how they 
act and how they think. So I was able to emulate that, that language and the, the manner of speech that they have. And that is what I think really saved me. But, you know, did you have any guidance in this? You know, it, it is more than acting. People need to genuinely believe you. And the stakes are incredibly high if you get it wrong. Yeah, no, I didn't have any guidance. So being the only female, I really had no one to emulate off of. And like I said, there's a big difference between what the males do and how a female can blend in. So, you know, at the onset, I was told you can carry a gun, but if they find it, they're going to know you're a cop because it's a, it's a nice gun. It's not like a, a street gun. So you have to make a decision whether you're going to carry or whether you're not. And the same with the wire. You can wear a wire or not, but if somebody sees it, your life is in jeopardy. So I elected to go with no wire and no gun. And there wasn't really any training, you know, so to speak, other than kind of uh, riding along with others and seeing how they perform. But the issue is that, you know, there's a different way of talking on the street. There's a different way of acting. Like you, you'd be surprised, like your mannerisms, you could be identified as a cop, your, your verbal, the way you talk could be, you know, I had to literally change everything. And that took, you know, about six months for me to kind of acclimate to the street. Being undercover consumed Laura. She had finally achieved what she'd always thought she would since she was young. But the job was grinding and dangerous. Yeah, there, that was very, very difficult because I'm always looking over my shoulder, I'm always worried that I'll run into somebody or, you know, the city required that we lived in the city. So you're making me go undercover and then live in the same city. Like I had no escape. How did you think about that time in the undercover piece? Like, did you think because I'm putting my life on hold, this will be again, like a means to an end, like a limited timeline that you do it, or you thought this was your career path? No. So my initial thought at that time was this is going to give me the experience that I want to possibly go and work in the feds and the federal government, whether, you know, it's, you know, ATF or FBI or whatever it was. And I thought I, I wanted that undercover experience to see if that was a path for me. But it came a point where I was making $38,000 a year. Like I was barely surviving. I had to have a roommate just to survive. And it was one of those kind of come to Jesus things that you can put 10 million undercover people on the street. You will never make a dent in the drug trade. So it, it became futile for me. There, there was no point. There was uh, the risk was far greater than any reward. So I don't see the spend that we that we spend on this ridiculous fight against drugs because you'll never get rid of it. So I felt like I, I lost the purpose, my purpose of, of what I wanted to do. And then I ended up leaving the department and going to a, a neighbor apartment department. And it was much slower, very boring. And that's when I decided kind of I wanted to go back to school and get my master's degree and explore other opportunities. And that's really kind of when it opened my eyes to, wow. You know, there's there's a lot more than just law enforcement. Yeah, that decision to go back to school, you must have already had some inkling that there's something else besides law enforcement out there. Do you remember what it was there like a catalyst for it? There was. So actually what happened was I had made the decision, all right, I'm getting out. 
And I just started applying for any and every job I could to start learning something new. Because in law enforcement, you don't really have any transferable skills to anything else. So I got literally, I was applying for jobs for two years and I wasn't even getting an interview. So I knew that I had to make a change, a drastic change. And I thought the only way I'm going to do this is I could either go to law school or I could go to get my MBA. The reason that I chose my MBA is because that was two years as opposed to three. And I was, you know, not getting any younger. And I was really becoming just depressed about it. I was like, God, I made, you know, uh, the wrong decision here. Please tell me I'm not stuck. And I just hated living in the Midwest too, because the only thing that took me there was the job. So I was just, you know, really at a crossroads at that time. She enrolled at Baker University to earn her MBA. So I did it at night and I, I made switch my shift to the afternoon shift. So uh, it took me two years and that was an accelerator program. Did it help where I am today? I would say no. But what it did is it opened my eyes to other industries that I hadn't had any exposure to. So meeting those other students, you know, that are in finance and banking and technology, like I had never thought about any of that. So for that, I'm grateful. I mean, I was the only one, of course, that came from civil service. Everybody else was already in business and just looking to elevate their careers. So had you been looking for businesses while you were going through school, continuing to work in the police force? Were you still looking for like a wholesale change of industry or were you thinking how to connect your experiences? Well, I've, I always wanted to do my own business, but I, I had zero money. Again, I still had a roommate and I had about $2,500 in savings and that was about it. And so I was looking at franchises, what businesses, like I was just literally every spare moment I had, I was doing research and I was just getting more and more disenchanted because I didn't have the backing, the financial ability to start really anything. So I had to figure out what can I do that I can bootstrap that doesn't require an injection of a ton of money. With little money and still working full-time as a police officer, Laura felt like she had hit a wall. But she was committed to finding a new path in life. She utilized the career center at the school she no longer attended, read books, and did her best to educate herself and find her ticket out. So I just started kind of reading a bunch of books on entrepreneurship and just kind of self-education and uh, still working my job, hating life. And that homicide came. And uh, a woman's uh, son had been murdered. And I was, you know, working as uh, that was part of my detail, so to speak. She came up to me and said, hey, when are you guys coming back to clean this up? And I was like, we don't clean that up. And she's like, well, then who does? And I'm like, I have no idea, but I'll ask for you. So, you know, I kind of went on this fact finding mission of asking CSI homicide and they were like, we don't know, we don't know. And I'm thinking, wow, this is really strange that I had never been asked this in seven years and I've worked a ton of homicides and these guys work it every day. They either don't know or don't care. They're just, you know, that's not part of what they do. So it's, they're not involved in it. So I really just kind of started in investigating it and I thought, you know what, I can do this, but I need to see how do I do this? So I just kind of started on this research of, where can I learn how to do this? There's got to be other companies in the country that I could essentially just, you know, shadow or, or learn from. 
So I found uh, a company in uh, Dallas, Texas, no longer there now, but um, this was back in 05. And I called him up and I said, do you train people? And he's like, yeah, actually. And I said, well, how much is it? And he said, one week is 2,500. And that's all I had. So I said, um, I used my only week of vacation, paid him the 2,500 and I went there and I learned how to do it. Wow. So how had you left crime scenes before that? I mean, did you have an internal conversation about what would happen after you left? Or you just sort of continued on? Sadly, no, I, it never, I never even thought about it. I'm embarrassed to say that because, you know, I think I got so entrenched in what I was doing in my responsibilities for the crime scene that I never considered what happens when the body's removed. So she went to Dallas for the training and learned all the messy details of crime scene cleanup. And I'm comfortable with these chemicals and everything, but I still was very uncomfortable with the business side of things the marketing, the estimating, like all that is, you know, is crucial, obviously. So I had to learn as I go. And, you know, of course, I made a a lot of mistakes. I undercharged a lot of people, but I chalked that up to I got the experience I needed. How did you launch yourself? Did you do it immediately after you came back from this cleanup? Yeah. So what happened was uh, when I was in the training, I was sitting next to um, two super nice guys and they were from Oklahoma and they were uh, business partners. They were talking about how they wrote a business plan, somewhat rudimentary business plan, and um, walked into their bank and got a $150,000 loan, like an SBA loan. So I was invigorated, you know, when he said, you know, it was pretty easy. We just kind of walked in and it, it is what it is. And I said, okay. So he was kind enough to literally give me his exact business plan. And I just changed my name and the name of the company, of course. And I went back home and I was like, ready to go, walked into a bank. They're like, nope. Walked into a second bank. Nope. Like didn't even entertain it. I walked into four different banks and they all said no. So (laughs) I go back home and I call my new friend and I said, I don't know what I'm doing wrong. I said, I'm literally doing exactly what you did, what you told me. And he's like, I don't understand this. And then it just clicked for me. And it was like, oh, I get it. You're a male and I'm a female. That's why I'm not getting the lending. And then I started doing research into that. And I was like, oh, only 2% of females ever get venture capital. So like this is a systematic problem. Women are a growing force in the business world, but if they own a company, they still struggle getting access to capital from banks. According to the online lending marketplace biztocredit.com, women's business loan approval rates are nearly 20% below men's currently. Although women found 38% of U.S. companies, they only get 2% of the venture funding. I am also a female business owner and I completely self-funded my business, which I is think it's the right time for something like this. You know, when I was at Baker Capital, um, I never saw any other women investors. I never saw any women founders of companies. And all of a sudden we had this perfect storm of women being interested in building businesses and capital there to support them, accelerators that were there to support them and uh, no capital. So I I had to get creative with it, and uh, I decided to go to a fifth bank and essentially lie and say I needed a home equity loan for new windows, and they wrote me a check for $15,000. So 
what that told me was, we'll never take a chance on you. We don't believe in you. We need massive amount of collateral to uh, give you a dime. And sadly, 17 years later, in millions and millions of dollars, that's still the case. We've still never had a business loan. Never. Other than a mortgage, of course, that's not, you know, highly collateralized. And what were the startup costs involved? Like, is it what kind of runway did that give you? So what it did, it, it was just enough to l- allow me to bootstrap it. So I just bought the necessity. I, I couldn't obviously buy a vehicle. So what I did is I bought a pull behind trailer because I had a paid off vehicle. Uh, I keep my vehicles for a really long time. So I had like a 10 year old Bronco and I bought this uh, pull behind trailer. It was like $2,200. And then I bought just the basic PPE, chemicals, and the HEPA vacuum. Those were the things that I couldn't cut out. Everything else, like tool-wise, I thought I can rent as needed and then kind of build up from there. So I used probably 10000 out of the fifteen, and then the rest was to print some marketing materials and things like that. And I couldn't afford, you know, Google pay-per-click or anything like that. So I, I, I literally went door to door. At this point, Laura was still working for the police department to make it all work. But eventually they gave her an ultimatum. It was either the police department or her business. And just kind of without hesitation, I was just so miserable there that I was just like, I quit. When I quit, it was like the biggest sense of relief. And I'm like, why the hell am I living here? Uh, I don't even like living here. So I just kind of packed up my bags and moved to Florida. She had one friend in Florida that she had kept in touch with since high school who let her stay until she figured things out. So once I got here, I realized I need a job too. You know, I'm starting a new business. I need a job in conjunction. And I thought, what, what can I do that will benefit me on my business as well? And I needed some sales experience. So I started applying for a bunch of sales jobs because I wanted somebody to teach me how to sell because I didn't know. And uh, I got lucky and got hired with a small medical sales company. And uh, I had a pretty large territory in the state of Florida, some of Alabama and Mississippi. So I traveled a lot. So what I did is I was able to double dip. So while I was selling my medical equipment, I was also stopping at apartments, hotels, and I was literally selling all day long. And then I had two cell phones. And when one cell phone rang, I knew that it was a job and that I, I would just do it after hours. I did that for a couple years. How did you manage that, the two? I mean, if you were going in a large territory, you probably had to travel again to take the cleanup job. Yeah. So once I started to get busier, I was like, wow, I'm going to need to have some people local while I'm traveling around. So I hired two stay-at-home moms. They had never done it before, so I taught them how to do it. And, you know, initially I was concerned, like, are they going to be okay with this? Like, it's gross. And they were like, oh, we change diapers all day. This is nothing for us. And and uh, they turned out to be great. You know, they stayed with me uh, three, four years. So they took the days while I was traveling. I took the nights and weekends. And I eventually quit the sales job after two years and uh, started running everything full-time. You know, I do love to talk generally about all of the business skills that come from parenting things I hadn't appreciated until I had multiple children, have to manage and balance it all. This was not an aspect I anticipated. Not so much. No, me either. But they were actually a perfect fit. Slow and steady, she began to build the business. She started to pick up bigger jobs around Florida, 
And instead of selling every day, she was fielding requests from hotels, apartments, management companies, funeral homes, and even insurance companies. I would go with them and I would, you know, bring the technicians. And I was still working in the business while I was also marketing. I mean, it was exhausting. I was working 12, 14 hour days, but I was building the business, building the reputation. And that way, since I was there, I could manage the quality of the work. I lived very minimalist and put all of my revenue back into the business. It sounds like through all of these jobs, you're always working around the clock. Did you ever think about, or how did you prioritize, if you did at all, any semblance of personal life? I didn't at all. It was always my priority to focus on my career and my growth. And if I had friendships along the way, that was wonderful, but it was never my priority in doing so. At what point did you think, okay, we're on to something. Like I'm really, I'm, I'm doing pretty well here. Like maybe I've made it. I would say it was probably about 2008 and nine. That was when the, the recession came and we started to get a lot of very large contracts with banks for foreclosures. Initially, the contracts they were giving us were just Florida-based because we were just in Florida. And it was everything from, you know, these houses have been sitting so long, there's mold everywhere. So we were doing mold remediation. People were cooking meth in the home. So we were doing decontamination from that. There was crime scenes. There was biohazard, you know, just out of the norm type stuff that we were helping them with. And uh, one day our rep said, would you be willing to take work in the whole country? And I said, as long as you're, you know, that I would be subcontracting it. And she said, I don't care because you'll be managing it. And if you can do, you know, what you're doing in Florida and just that would help us out greatly. So I hired a bunch of admins and we essentially just started brokering out the whole country, hiring subcontractors to do exactly what we're doing in a different state. We were doing Alaska, Hawaii, all, I mean, all 50 states. And so we had, I had a system that was really flowing very well. And that's when I knew, hmm, this, this is easily replicable. So how are you keeping that quality control? Where did you put them through your own training? No. So I was hiring companies that were already in business and I would give them contracts and their criteria that we required for that in order for them to get paid. Uh, photographic proof of, you know, a very specific photos from very different angles time stamp, date stamp, and they had to follow every step of the way in order for them to get paid. And then we got a percentage, of course, of, of every job that came in. So at what point did you start to think about a franchise model as opposed to, I mean, it sounds like this, this model was working, the subcontracting model. Yeah, it was until it wasn't. So uh, right around 2012, the quality started to take a dive. And I think foreclosures started to kind of slow down at that point And we weren't getting the same response from our subs that we used to get. They would say that they're going to do an estimate and get take the photos, and then we wouldn't hear from them for days. So the chain started to break a little bit. And I was talking to my lawyer just about something completely different. And I was kind of complaining about, man, I can't believe these guys are just kind of passing up easy free work. And he said, you should really franchise this. He said, you've already built this system. He said, if you franchise it, you'll have people under your umbrella that won't flake out like these guys. He's like, you, these are subs. You have no, you know, control over anything. So I kind of blew it off at first because I, 
I didn't eat, know anything about franchising or what it entailed. And then we revisited it again in 2014. And I thought, you know what, let me, let me actually seriously look into this. And, and that's when I kind of decided to move forward with it. And so we started in 2016. Franchising is no easy task. In order to copy and paste your business, you have to create an extremely detailed operations manual, especially considering the training needed for this type of work. When we hire them, we have an online training that we created, and then they ride with a supervisor for 90 days, and uh, they train that way kind of on the job. And that's the kind of the, the bad and the good is that you can't train for everything in a classroom. You have to be physically fit to do this. You're wearing uh, full PPE. It's very, very hot. A respirator, which compromises your breathing. You feel like you're breathing out of a straw. And you're in sometimes difficult environments, rats, roaches, you know, just tight, confined spaces. So you have to have a high level of empathy for the client, for the family. But then when you're cleaning up, you have to have the mindset of it's just a mess. There's no person there. And if you don't know who they are, anything about them, sometimes we don't even know their gender. You're just cleaning up spilled milk. It's just a mess you're cleaning up. Don't look too far into it because for two reasons. One, it's none of our business. And two, it just makes it more difficult for you. So don't get emotionally attached. Get in there with the purpose of I'm going to take this back to pre-incident condition and help the family. That's the best way I can help them. I want to jump in here because this is one of the first times here on this podcast that I'm airing a part of our conversation that I didn't necessarily agree with or feel 100% comfortable with. What I love so much and hope to achieve with She Pivots is telling complex stories and all the aspects that come with the pivots. But with Laura, she had decided to elevate her business in an unexpected way through social media. And as you can imagine, it gets gruesome. Her perspective here certainly brings up a debate on the ethical responsibilities of companies for what and how they post. So let's talk about the social media presence. You have a pretty significant social media presence. How did it start? Yeah, so that was uh, quite the story as well. So back in 2012, I believe, we out of the blue, I just started getting all these calls from reality TV show producers saying, we found your company, we, we love the concept, and we think it could be a reality show. And, you know, of course, I don't know anything about that industry. I'm like, okay, can we fly people down, follow you, and create a sizzle? I'm like, okay, whatever. So that happened quite a bit from 2012 to about 2018. Um, we were probably under contract with, I think, six different companies separately and to, to pitch the, uh, the idea. And what was going on is they were essentially pitching it to your normal TV, you know, your A&E, your Lifetime. Your, and I always knew that that was, that was not the place for the show because it would, it would require too much censorship. And the whole point that is people want to see what we do. And if you're censoring all of that, then it's kind of a moot point. Instead, Laura decided to go in a different direction. Instead of working with the TV network, she hired a videographer, an editor, and began posting themselves. And it took off. So to my surprise, within like the first couple months, we had 100,000 subscribers and we were getting like the YouTube award. And I'm like, wow, so there's clearly an audience for this here. 
and you know, now we're almost to a million subscribers and TikTok blew up. We're four and a half million there. And so that told me that there's definitely an audience for this. And the approach that we are taking is the correct one because people are interested to know what happens when you die. Uh, what happens to the body? You know, it's just, a, I think it's a common interest. How do you maintain, there's a lot of conversation now about what's accessible online, what's, you know, what's available, trigger warnings. So how do you manage that? I think it's, you know, same part of the conversation with the respect for the victims and the families. So I think a lot of that is the platform. So the platform, I think, has age restrictions on the content that they can view. So we can put trigger warnings, but I can't prevent some kid in Idaho from from watching it if they lie about their age. And I don't feel that that's our responsibility. That's the parent's responsibility to make sure that that your your kids are watching what you find acceptable. We certainly can't be responsible for everyone's kids and what they watch. On many of the posts, I'm actually not on TikTok. I am on Instagram. And so I've seen your your Instagram posts and your YouTube posts, and you do put commentary in them, you know, numbers to suicide hotlines, you know, reminding people to check on their loved ones. But with the franchise model, a lot of your franchisees have their own accounts. So does that end up being a piece of your relationship with your franchisees to make sure they still provide the same level of responsibility of content, of empathy, and have relationships fallen apart if they didn't? Absolutely. So from a corporate level, we actually manage all their accounts in conjunction with them. So they're allowed to post to, and obviously they have parameters uh, that we provide, you know, the, the privacy aspect of it and the empathetic you know, hand and and stuff. And they have, for the most part, been very, very good at keeping the brand what it, what it's supposed to be. My point of the social media is educational because I, I don't want people to be afraid of death. It's just a natural thing. And I think by, by us bringing the attention to it, I'm hoping that it opens up a conversation because this country does a really poor job at mental health awareness and, and helping people that need it. And uh, I would love for us to have open and honest conversations about the status of, of mental health in our country. And uh, it's hard to be a kid today. You know, I, they, there was no social media when I was a kid. And I feel really bad for them because, you know, if you're getting bullied at school, you could just go home and then you're safe. But now you can't you know, uh, they're following you on social media. And they're the, so I, I just think there just needs to be more open and honest conversations about what these kids are going through and what people are going through. And maybe we could address uh, some of the mental health issues to get people some help that they desperately need. I actually hear like a little bit of a tension between some of our last questions that, you know, there's so much on social media, but also like it would be on the parents to regulate what their kids can see. Like I maybe talk more frankly with my kids about death, I think, than other people, but not nearly as explicitly probably as you do with the conversations that you have. And I think quite honestly that if my kids saw what was posted from, you know, from your business, I'd probably be upset about it. So how do you think about managing that tension? Well, I, I don't think there's, what's it called, where they put um, limitations or restrictions on, on your kids' phones. And I have that on mine. You know, they, they can't see certain things and um, they're not of that age yet. And you shouldn't be having that conversation like, you know, about my kids are five, you know, so I'm not going to say, you know, this is what happens when you 
someone decomposes. Like they're not ready for that yet. I would say more 15, we can probably start having that conversation. So there's obviously parental responsibility. You don't want kids watching porn. You don't want to want a certain um, element of violence and stuff. And our content is not meant for children. You know, we, every video we have, it states 18 or older. And uh, if the platform allows us, we always put a trigger warning to it. So I, I can only be responsible for for what we put out. I can't be responsible for you know, a random parent in Wisconsin that's not paying attention to what their 10-year-old's watching. You know, I think that's just normal curiosity for kids as they grow up and, and, and adults as well. So if you look at, you know, the most popular TV shows and podcasts on the internet, they're true crime, law enforcement, medical. People are obsessed with the unknown. And I think that's just normal human curiosity. And uh, we are not glamorizing death by any means. We are saying, we were called here. This is what happened. And this is how we're going to handle it. So talk to me about becoming a parent. Did this, did you always think that you would be a parent? No, <laughs> never. I had such a terrible upbringing that I always thought that I would never be a parent. You know, you tend to do say and act like your parents, right? Because that, that's your role model growing up. And I had terrible role models and I wanted to make sure that I I didn't emulate them in any way. And I thought the safest way to avoid that would just to be not to have children. But then I got married and my wife at the time always wanted children and a lot of children. So the compromise was we would have one and kind of see how it goes. And, um, you know, the whole time I was, I was just terrified because I didn't want to become my parents. So I constantly make a conscious decision to literally be the opposite. I have kind of created my work schedule around my family. So because we're a blended family, you know, I, I share custody with my son and my partner shares custody with, with her daughter and they're the best of friends. They're, they look like twins. They're both five years old. So we have a good time together and I never really thought about what my life would be like, you know, as a, as a family, cause I never considered it. And it's a lot of fun. And I, I enjoy being with them and I look forward to it and I make sure that I'm not working on the, on the days that I have them because I want my full focus because you don't get that time back. You don't. I mean, you know, that day is gone and I can't believe they're already five years old. <laughs> <laughs> what is something looking back, this is going to be a broad question, but what is something that at the time you thought was a negative and now you see it as having really propelled you? the military experience. I thought that, you know, that that experience was a complete negative and, uh, it, it left me with a scarlet letter. It left me with the trauma of what we went through being locked up, being threatened with, you know, five years in prison, the whole bit. I thought that that was devastating. And now I, in hindsight, you know, it's been 25 years or more years, 30 almost. And I can say that from the position that I sit now, that that happened for me, not to me. And I was able to, to really take the good experience out of that. And it added just to my ability to survive. And I've had a lot of adversity. And when I'm handed these things, I have to learn how to pivot and survive and uh, turn it into a good thing. Because you can sit there and dwell and cry on it and it won't make any bit of difference. So the best thing you can do is kind of have the mindset of turning these negative things into a positive. 
You know, some of the commentary that we have around this show generally is that it is always privileged to pivot and there is privilege in, in it. You've been low, like you've seen a lot of adversity. What is your response to that? I would say that you're going to get punched in the face in at least once or twice in your life. It's what you do in that moment that will define you for the rest of your time. So if you're weak, you'll sit there and dwell on it and use it as a crutch and an excuse, or you can see the value of what happened for you and pivot and turn that into something positive. We all face that some more than others, but there's always a way out. This is so, so great. Thank you so much. Oh, it's my pleasure. No problem. Laura still lives in Florida with her wife and kids. She's continuing to grow the business with no sign of stopping. While we usually tell our listeners to find out more about our guests on their social media pages, I have to say, I'm not sure you'll find much about Laura there. So head over to She Pivots the Podcast to find out more about Laura. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening to this episode of She Pivots, where I talk with women about how their experiences and significant personal events led to their pivot and eventually their success. Be sure to follow us on Instagram at She Pivots the Podcast and leave a rating and comment if you enjoyed this episode to help others learn about it. A special thank you to our partner, Marie Claire, and the team that made this episode possible. Talk to you next week. She Pivots is hosted by me, Emily Tish sussman produced by Emily Edda Voloshik, with sound editing and mixing from Nina Pollock, and research and planning from Christine Dickison and Hannah Cousins. I endorse She Pivots. Trinity School of Natural Health can help you be part of the fast-growing health and wellness industry. With an education that empowers communities, Trinity grads can change lives by applying natural health principles and techniques in holistic practices or stores selling nourishing health products. Offering 19 online programs that fit your busy schedule, you'll get training to help turn your passion into a career. Enroll today at trinityschool.org. That's trinityschool.org. Right here, right now. Find your beautiful new floor at Right Rug Flooring. Choose from thousands of in-stock styles ready for next day installation and all backed by the right price guarantee. Visit rightrug.com. That's R-I-T-E-R-U-G.com today to schedule a free in-home estimate or to find a location near you. 24-month financing is available with approved credit. For 90 years, we've been right here, right now. Right Rug Flooring. Open a limited-time 11-month certificate at Kemba Financial Credit Union. At 5.25% APY, it's more than triple the national average, plus it's a safe and secure way to grow your money. Visit your local branch or kemba.org slash cb for details. Offer expires May 31st, 2024. APY equals annual percentage yield. Restrictions apply. $500 minimum and $250,000 maximum deposit. Advantage status required. Comparison based on bank rate average. Federally insured by NCUA.